Thank you, guys. Thank you, Trevor. It is a privilege to be with you. Um, I know it's been a long morning. There's been some great teaching, great workshops, devotions, uh, testimonies. If you're like me, you're kind of up to here in information and processing things, so kind of maybe a little mentally tired right now. Also, if you're like me, probably hungry. We'll get to eat here in an hour or so, Uh, but I guess I just respectfully ask that uh, hang with me for the next hour or so, and then we'll go belly up to the trough again. So I remember at one of the first men's conferences that I attended, I heard one of the speakers say something that really had an impact on me. The speaker said, a case can be made that authority is the most important issue in the Bible. Let me say that again. A case can be made that authority is the most important issue in the Bible. Now, I don't know about you guys. Maybe that's intuitive to you, or you've got that down pat. But for me, when I heard that at the time, that was a new thought. And that, uh, that really punched me in the gut. Now, I'd grown up in church. I'd heard countless sermons, been in countless Bible studies. But I'd never heard any pastor or Bible teacher say anything remotely similar to that. If I had, it just went over my head. I wasn't listening. It was a brand new thought for me. But as I've I've thought about it over the years, I've come to the conclusion that that is right on. Not only is it a true statement, it gets to the heart of what it means for us to live the Christian life. So I'm really excited to talk to you this morning about the issue of authority. If you look at the handout, we're going to start by talking about um, just kind of a broad overview of authority. Then I'm actually going to switch the the two and the three um, numbers. We're going to do four truths that you have to have in place to properly submit to authority. Then we're going to talk about Jesus Christ as our perfect example of submission to authority. And then lastly, and all that stuff is kind of preview and introduction to where I really want to go, which is that last section. We're going to talk about five New Testament examples where we are commanded to submit to authority in our lives. So with that, uh, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this conference and a a chance to get away and have some fellowship with like-minded brothers. I thank you for this time of encouragement, of exhortation, of uh, being challenged, hopefully being provoked to love and good deeds. Pray for every man here that that that's what we leave this conference with, is encouragement and being stimulated in their thinking to love and good deeds. Father, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And I confess here today for myself and for all these men that absolutely nothing, there's nothing that we have that we did not receive from you. And so I confess our complete and utter dependence on you. And uh, for this next hour, as I speak, I confess my complete dependence on you. Please, Lord, I pray that it's your words and not mine. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's talk about some broad strokes with authority. 
As we talk about authority, there's another word which naturally comes to mind, and that's the word submission. Authority and submission are very closely related. Authority assumes submission, and submission assumes authority. So let's start with some definitions just to make sure we're on the same page. This is just the the English dictionary, you know, online definition for authority. Uh, I I just have here a couple definitions that I think fit or relevant to how we're going to define authority in this talk. So, the power to control or demand obedience from others, or the power to give orders or to make decisions. That's authority. Now, submission. English dictionary definition of submission, the action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. All right, so let's do a thought experiment. I want you to imagine over the next few minutes the setting in Genesis chapter 2. As most of you guys know, Genesis chapter 2 describes the creation of the human race. Early in the chapter, describes Adam and later in the chapter describes the the creation of Eve. In chapter 2, both Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. As you know, in the next chapter, chapter 3 describes the fall of man and their expulsion from Eden. But in chapters 2, they're living perfectly in, in harmony with God in the Garden of Eden. So there's three beings that we know of in chapter 2. There's God, there's Adam, and there's Eve. We see in these three beings a very clear delineation of authority. God is the authority of Adam, and Adam submits himself to God. And Eve, Adam is the authority of Eve. Eve submits herself to Adam. Now we're going to talk in more detail later as we go on about the authority structure between man and woman. But for now, just suffice to say, man is the authority of woman. Adam is the authority of Eve. So while that authority structure is well laid out, um, God, Adam, Eve, there's another aspect of their relationship that I want to talk about for a few minutes. And that's the aspect, the fact that God is creator and Adam and Eve are the the creatures. I'd like to make an observation about creature and creator. Let me ask you, this most basic of questions. Have you ever thought, why did God create Adam? Why did God create Adam and Eve in the first place? Why did God create the human race? And by extension, why did God create you? Now, obviously, a full, complete answer to that question is above my pay grade. It's above the pay grade of every person that's ever lived. God's the creator, and he gets to answer that question. But God gives us his revelation in Scripture and he gives us some information on this that we can glean some, some of that information and at least to take a, a shot at a partial answer. So here's how I would answer. God created you so that he could have a relationship with you. He created you so that he could love you and conversely so that you could have a relationship with him so that you could get to know him, you could learn how to love him. Have you ever thought about that? That the creator of the universe created you so that you could have your own unique relationship with him. Not only that, but Jesus Christ, the son of God, went to the cross 
and died on the cross for you so that he could redeem you and again so that he could have a relationship with you. God saved you. He redeemed you for this very purpose. He killed his son, Jesus Christ, for this very purpose. And so the goal of our life is to get to know him. The goal of our life is to learn how to please him, to learn uh, to prepare for an eternity with him. All for the, for the goal of that relationship. And viewed f- through this lens, life has tremendous purpose. The quicker you realize that God created you for this purpose, that he could have a relationship with you, it's the quicker we can all get to the business of living the life that God uniquely created for us. So your purpose is linked hand in hand with your relationship with God, your maker. Now there's another aspect of this creature-creator relationship that I want to look at from a different angle. God created you with a free will. He created you with the ability to choose. He did not create you as a robot. And this makes sense with what we just said about relationships. You can't have a relationship with a robot. And it's the free will, this ability to choose, that makes this relationship between God and creature worthwhile. It's what makes it special in the first place. Inherent in our free will is our desire to seek our own independence, to seek our own will, to seek our own hopes, our own dreams, our own desires. And this gets to the the heart of of authority. The question on the table for all of us is, am I going to seek my own will, or am I going to surrender my independence and submit my will to God's will? And that's the defining characteristic of the Christian. One who submits to the will of God over his own will. And throughout the whole of the Bible, God makes it very clear that he will not have a relationship with you if you are willfully disobedient to him. God wants to have a relationship with you. He created you for that very purpose. But that relationship is always contingent on his being the authority and you being his obedient slave. Let me read a verse from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The context of these verses is his creation of you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It's that last part that I really want to focus on. Did you catch that last part? He created you according to the good pleasure of his will. He did not create you for the good pleasure of your will. And he did not create you for your good pleasure. He created you for his good pleasure. Guys, if you think about it, for most of us, maybe for all of us, that really ticks us off. We do not like that. We want to be about our will. We want to see life through the lens of it being for our good pleasure, not for someone else's. 
I was listening to a talk by Walt Henderson recently, and he made the point that you can have autonomy or you can have purpose, but you cannot have both. So what he meant by that is that you can choose autonomy, and by autonomy he just means doing your own will, doing what you want to do as opposed to what God wants you to do or obeying God. So if you choose autonomy, then you give up purpose. You give up purpose because purpose is inextricably linked to being created by God and learning how to have a relationship with him. That was our first point. And if you're willful with God, he will not have a relationship with you. And therefore, you forfeit your purpose in life. Now, on the other hand, if you choose purpose, you forfeit autonomy. You commit yourself to obeying God's will for your life, and you give up your own hopes and desires. So you can have autonomy, or you can have purpose, but you can't have both. So let me summarize this first point. God created you so that he could have a relationship with you. He sent his son to the cross to die for you for this very purpose, so he could redeem you and have a relationship with you. In your purpose in life, the reason for your existence is inextricably linked to having a relationship with your creator. But God will only have a relationship with you if you submit your will to his authority. Now that authority spans every aspect of your life. It's authority over how you define morality. It's authority over what you consider to be knowledge. Do you believe the Bible? Or do you believe human reason? It's authority over your thoughts, your words, your actions, every aspect of your life. It's this authority we're talking about. Let me stop there and see if there's any questions. All right, let's move on. Um, Still in uh, our overview of authority and submission, let me kind of switch gears a little bit. Turn me, if you would, to Genesis one twenty six. Now, for context, you guys probably mostly know this. But for context, day six is the creation story. I'm sorry, this is day six of the creation story from Genesis chapter one. And day six is when humans are created. God spends a few short verses in Genesis chapter one giving us some foundational information about humans. Verse 26 is the first verse in the Bible where we get any information about humans. Let's read it. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what do we learn here? Number one, we learn that we're made in God's image. Number two, we learned that we were created to rule over the earth. That rule is, is uh, in the same vein as authority. The King James Version uses the word dominion. So the man would have dominion over these things. The New Living Translation uses the word reign, R-E-I-G-N. 
all pointing to authority. And note that, seemingly for emphasis, God repeats this verse again two verses later in, in 128. Now, what exactly did he mean to rule over the fish and the birds and the cattle and every creeping thing? I don't know exactly, and I'm not sure anybody in this age knows what that meant. But that's not the point I'm driving at. The point is just simply that man was created to rule, to have authority, to have dominion. Now, those, this, this uh, authority, this dominion was taken away at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And we do not see a command again throughout Scripture to rule the earth. Genesis chapter 3 with the fall... I think that authority is transferred to Satan. And Satan is the current ruler of the earth. And we're going to look at that theme here in just a minute. But I don't think that's the end of the story. Let's fast forward a moment from Genesis to Revelation. We see scattered throughout Revelation the teaching that man is going to one day rule again. Let's take a look at some of those verses. Revelation 3.21, Jesus promises to the church in Laodicea that To him who overcomes, Jesus will grant to him to sit down with Jesus on his throne. To sit down with Jesus on his throne means to have authority with Jesus. Revelation chapter 5 describes a scene in heaven. Verses 9 and 10, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing a song which states in part, You have made them, them means man, to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. God has a future rulership. Sorry, man has a future rulership. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, we learn that man will reign with Christ during the millennium. And in Revelation 22, 5, we learn that man will reign forever and ever in the eternal state. So the first thing we learn about man in Genesis is that he was created to reign. And in the last chapter of Revelation, we learn again that man will reign forever and ever in the eternal state. So guys, you were created to have authority. Now on the macro scale right now, man does not currently possess authority on this earth as God had intended. And according to Revelation, still does intend in the future. The rule of authority currently belongs to Satan. So let's take a look at that for a minute. Start in uh, the Gospel of John. In three occasions... The verses are John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11. Each of those three verses, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul calls Satan the god of this world. In Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, does that mean, does all this mean that we obey Satan? Of course not. As Christians, we obey God. But it does mean that as we walk throughout life, all the interactions, all the inputs we have from this world, those are, Satan is the ruler of of everything in this world. You guys remember in Matthew chapter 4, in the temptation of Jesus... Right before Jesus starts his ministry, he fasts for 40 days and Satan comes to tempt him. Do you guys remember the third temptation? 
Let me read it to you in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now the point of this passage is not that Satan didn't have the authority to do what he was offering Jesus, to give him those kingdoms. He, I believe, did have that authority and ability. The point of the passage was that Jesus was not to worship Satan, but that Satan had the authority over those kingdoms, I think is true. I think the premise was true. Now, let's turn again to Revelation. Revelation as a book describes the ultimate destruction of Satan's power on this earth and the transfer of that power, that kingdom, to Jesus Christ. And we see uh, in Revelation 13.2 something very remarkable. I think I actually have this verse up here. So uh, it's talking about the dragon and the beast. The dragon, very explicitly, uh, John tells us, is Satan. And Satan is giving his authority, this authority that we're talking about, he's giving it to the beast, who's the Antichrist. So it reads, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And again, I just put this here as an illustration of what we're talking about. Right now, Satan has authority. And this will be transferred to the Antichrist uh, in this seven-year period that precedes the millennium. So all that's just to illustrate Satan's current rulership authority on earth. All right, now let's talk about Jesus and his future kingship. Before I, I get into this, let me make it very clear Jesus currently reigns in heaven with his Father. And according to Colossians 1.13, we belong to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. So Jesus is currently reigning. He is not here physically on earth reigning, but he is the ultimate authority. And he does reign from heaven. The last thing Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28:18 is that all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So Jesus has authority. But he's not currently reigning as the ruler of this earth currently. So let's let's kind of walk through uh what you know the the prophecy of his rulership uh from the Old Testament how he uh Uh, lived in his first advent, and then what will happen in his second advent. We see early in the book of, uh, or we see in Genesis, early in the Bible, references to Jesus' future kingship. In Genesis 49.10, Jacob is giving a prophecy to his 12 sons. When he talks about Judah, this is what he says. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter is, is the, you know, a sign of, of, of a king, of a ruler. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So he's talking about a king there. 
But there was no king of Israel at that time. There wasn't a king of Israel for, for a long time after that. But we see in here a first hint of a future king of Israel. And that's a theme that's developed through the Old Testament. As you guys know, the, the uh, monarchy of Israel did not start until David. We see that described in, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, we see what is termed the Davidic covenant, the covenant of David. I'm going to read to you 2 Samuel 7, 16. It says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That promise to David, we think, ultimately refers to Christ. And again, it's this hint of a future king. Israel did have rulers. They did have kings starting with David, but that monarchy uh, was temporary. Uh, with, um, with Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, we see that kingship end. And from the time of 586 to the time of Christ, there is no king of Israel. So there was a temporary rulership over Israel but throughout the Old Testament, and then we see it very uh, much more frequently in the prophets later in the Old Testament, there is this hint, this prophecy of a future reigning king. And that was Israel's hope. So let's fast forward to the New Testament. Early in the New Testament, we see a message from the angel Gabriel to, to Mary. So Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. Let me read this to you. This is Gabriel speaking to Mary. I think I have it up here too. Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So I bolded some words up here that illustrate this issue of, of authority, rulership. Now, if you were Mary hearing these words, could you, do you think, legitimately conclude that her son Jesus would grow up to be a king of Israel? I would suggest, yeah. Uh, it sure seems to be the plain language of what Gabriel's saying. Now we know after the fact that Jesus in his first advent did not come to his throne. I'd say quite the opposite. He went to the cross, submitted his will to the will of his father, and he died for your sin and for my sin. So in his first advent, he did not take his position as king. But we believe, and Revelation is full of references, that in Jesus' second coming, that is when he will become king. That will be when he starts his authority, uh, his rulership in earth, as a, a physical king on earth. Revelation twelve fifteen and nineteen fifteen both say that Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
and he will reign forever and ever. So again, Revelation describes this transfer of power, kingdom from Satan's kingdom to Jesus' kingdom. And he'll reign in the thousand-year uh, millennium and then in the eternal state. So all that is just to kind of think through authority, who's in authority uh, right now, in the past, in the future, and uh, is meant to set up kind of where we're going to go in the rest of the talk. Let me pause there again for questions. All right, so let me keep going. So now I want to just briefly go over with you four truths that I think the Christian must have in place, have in focus, to help him or her properly submit to authority. These commands of authority that we're going to, submission to authority, that we're going to uh, review in the last part of this talk. Now, these are broad truths. These are truths that we spend a lot of time on at these conferences. And a lot of the other, these other speakers uh, this weekend are going to elaborate on some of these truths. And uh, my goal here is not so much to elaborate about them, but just to kind of mention some, some truths we have to have in place. So number one, God is the author of everything that happens to you. He's in control. He's sovereign. The verse to illustrate that is Isaiah 45, 6 and 7, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing calamity and creating, uh, sorry, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Truth number two. Everything that God does to you is for your good. He's the lover of your soul. And everything he does for you, he means to prepare you for an eternity with him. That relationship in heaven that we talked about earlier. Truth number three. God and God alone meets your needs. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God and God alone meets your needs. Number four, the law of the harvest is eternal. What do I mean by that? So things may not be fair in this life. We see that every day. This life is not just. Life is not fair. But God tells us that they are going to be fair in eternity. Justice will be served in eternity. That's all I mean by the law of the harvest. Justice will be served in eternity. But there's no promise temporally here on this earth that we'll see fairness, that we'll see justice played out. So God knows how to reward you. We talked about Hebrews eleven six earlier today. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. He knows how to make it up to you. And we do not follow the 
commands to submission that we're going to talk about. Obeying parents, wives to husbands, obeying the government, all these commands. We do not follow those commands in a vacuum. Every decision that we make will affect our, de- our eternity. And that's why an understanding of eternal rewards is so important because it provides us with the motivation that God intended for us to uh, obey, to do these hard things, to meet these tests, these trials that he puts in front of us. And these are tests and trials. So we have to learn to sacrifice our temporal hope for an eternal hope in order to properly submit to authority and expect justice in the next life, in eternity, but not have an expectation in this life. All right, uh, so let's go now to uh, Jesus Christ as our perfect example of submission. So, God gives us in Scripture an example of obeying authority. And it's in the form of his son, Jesus. His, Jesus, who we think properly as our authority, who is our authority, think of him as ruling and as a king. Those things are all 100% true. But in his first advent here on earth, he gave us a beautiful example of what it looks like to submit to authority. Hebrews, the author says, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So even the Son of God had to learn obedience. Let me take a look at 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. This is a passage that really beautifully illustrates uh, Jesus' submission. I think I've got it up here. Let me read this to you. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for, for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed." So Jesus, in going to the cross, he obeyed his father and showed us what it means to submit to authority and to obey. Now, the word submission is not found here, but I think this is absolutely a perfect, uh, or a great passage on submission. The reason I say that is is twofold. First, if you're familiar with 1 Peter, you know this little passage is sandwiched right in between some other really well-known passages on submission. So in First Peter chapter 2, there's a passage about submitting to the government. Later is a passage about servants submitting to masters. And then we get to this passage. And then later, we transition to First Peter chapter 3, and it's a well-known passage about wives sub- submitting to husbands. So this great passage in First Peter about submission, we have this example here about Jesus and following in the footsteps of Jesus. Second reason, I think this is a perfect example or a great example of submission, 
It's just that this describes what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we all know that, you know, this example of what Jesus did on the cross was an example of him not doing his own will, but doing the will of his father's. You guys remember what Jesus said in the garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus in going to the cross, showing us that he was doing his father's will and not his own. He submits to his father. Jesus tells us in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, just illustrating Jesus in his life, his first uh, advent. It was all about not doing his own will, but submitting his will to the authority of his father. One other aspect of this passage I want to talk about before we move on to the last section. And that's this line here about he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So I said earlier that fourth truth that the law of the harvest is eternal. It's not temporal. And we see here an example of Jesus believing and trusting in his father who would judge righteously eventually. What happened on the cross was not fair. In fact, I would argue that it was the most unfair thing that ever happened in the world. Why? You have Jesus, who was righteous, who's perfectly righteous. He deserved zero punishment. But he goes to the cross and he takes punishment for all the sins that I've done, for all the sins that you guys have done, for all the sins of mankind that have happened throughout the history of the world that do deserve punishment. And he takes those sins and he says, I'm going to take the punishment for those. Even though I deserve zero punishment, I'm going to take the punishment, the wrath that you deserve and that I I deserve. And it's for that reason I say that what happened on the cross is the most unfair thing that ever happened. So you guys, you guys know our generation cries out for justice. Justice is a buzzword, social justice. Everybody wants justice today. But I want you guys to know and have firmly in your mind that if justice is served, then I spend and you spend eternity in hell. So guys, we've got to be careful what we ask for. It's only because of what Jesus did on the cross that I will not go to hell and that I can spend an eternity with God in heaven. So only God can judge righteously. Men do not judge righteously. And in, in justice will not fully be played out in this life. But we have hope that when we are judged on our judgment day by God, that we will see that. So that judgment will take place in eternity. In this life, we're commanded to treat others justly, but we're given no biblical promise that justice will be given to us in return in this life. 
Our Savior went to the cross and took the punishment for sins that he did not commit. And we're told to follow his example. So as we attempt to obey, to submit ourselves to authority, we're given this great example of Jesus going to the cross and suffering what he suffered on the cross and doing it in a righteous way. He did it knowing that his father would judge righteously, but he would not get that fairness, that justice on earth. Let me stop there and pause for questions again. Yeah. This one, this one hot? Over here? Hot mic. All right. Brought up justice there about how it's eternal and not uh, to be found temporal. I agree. Um, certainly not perfect justice. Um, how do you seek to work out like Micah six eight that he has told us, "O oh man, what is good to do justice?" Do we forego justice or do we just understand it's not complete? Yeah, that's a great verse. Um, in great thought, question. I think that command, and there's many other commands like it in the Old Testament prophets, I see that um, as our, a call for us to treat others justly, individually. So, for sure, you and I as Christians need to treat others uh, with love and with justice. So I'm not to say that uh, we, there's no expectation for judgment or for justice in this life. That's not, that doesn't mean that you and I are excused from not treating other people justly. That's on an individual basis. Um, but that that command, you know, refers to a system or a, a government, you know, to say that the, the United States government has, you know, that, um, that expectation or that needs to be worked out on a systematic level. I don't see that in that verse. Or that there, there needs to be a system in this world where everything is, is completely equal and fair. That's, that's just never going to, that's not a promise in, uh, from God and that's never been the case. Nor will be the case temporally. That's a great question, and um, so we're going to transition here to the commands to submit to authority in the New Testament, and I want to go there. Um, so there may still be some questions, because these are not easy issues, and the application sometimes can be very difficult, frankly. Um, so there, there still may be some questions after I go over this, but I, I want to address that exact point uh, here in the, the last part of the, the talk. Anything else? All right, so we're going to move to the fourth and final section, which is the, the examples of these commands for submission. First one we're going to talk about is uh, the relationship between man and women and the authority structure in place there. 
So I actually have uh, a few verses from the New Testament that apply to this. I want to just list them to you. I'm not going to go over all these, uh, but if you, um, just for your own study, want to have a list that I found, one is 1 Corinthians 11.3 that uh, is up on the screen here. Second is Ephesians 5.22 through 24. Then Colossians 3.18. Then 1 Timothy 2.11 and 12. Titus 2.5. And 1 Peter 3.1 through 6 are just some examples of verses that speak to uh, exactly what we're about to talk about. Let me read the the one I have up here on the screen. 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So, as I've heard Jerry say, the Apostle Paul is not eliciting our opinion on this matter. He is not suggesting this for our consideration. He's just simply telling us this is the way it is. You and I both know this is not what our world believes. Uh, And this uh, just gets people madder madder than hell. You guys know that. I know that. But God says... Paul, God tells us through the Apostle Paul, this is the way it is. So let me go through some principles on this. The husband will give an account to God, to Jesus, when he meets Jesus at his judgment. He'll give an account for how he submitted to Jesus, his authority. He will also give an account for how he exercised authority over his wife. The wife will simply give an account for her submission to her husband because the husband plays the role of Christ's vicar in her her life. So the husband gives an account both ways. The wife gives an account simply to uh, how she submitted to the husband. Second principle, there's a difference between agreement and submission. It is very easy to submit, and I'll put submit in quotation marks, when you agree. And it turns out that it, probably in a lot of marriages, there's a high percentage of agreement. It's not true in all marriages, but it can be true. And when there's a high degree of uh, agreement between the husband and the wife, you don't see a lot of opportunity for true submission. And you can be even fooled or deceived into thinking that because you're mostly in agreement, that you are submitting But agreement does not tell us about submission. We learn about submission when there's disagreement. When there's disagreement between the husband and the wife, that's when we learn if the wife will truly submit. So is there any situation where the wife should not submit to the husband? And this may speak to to the question earlier. I would say, yes, there is. If the husband asks the wife to do something that is in clear disobedience to the command of the New Testament, such as stealing, lying, obeying a false god, and so on, then the wife should not obey the husband. The wife should obey those New Testament commands. But if it's an extra-biblical issue, that does not apply including the wife's convictions and the wife's, the wife's conscience. 
The wife's convictions do not trump the husband's authority. Otherwise, her convictions would be an authority, right? So if your wife has a conviction on something that is not explicitly stated in Scripture, and note, much of life is not explicitly commanded in Scripture. If your wife has a conviction and you want her to do something different than the conviction, she needs to obey that authority. Uh, the, what is it, fourth principle, the wife absolutely has to have in focus in order to obey this, that God is going to protect her from the error and stupidity of her husband. Because we're all stupid. We're all going to do things that are dumb, stuff we shouldn't do. We know we're not, we know we're uh, fallible as husbands. And if the wife is going to obey the command to, to obey her husband, she has to have it firmly in focus that God's in control, that God means it for her good, that God, God can supply all of her needs and will supply all of her needs, and that God's going to make it up to her in eternity. That's why we went through those four truths. If she doesn't have those in place, she's not going to submit. And it's our job as husbands to help her have those in place, to teach those truths to our wives, to help them to understand biblically those wonderful, wonderful truths. Last principle on this, uh, we'll go back to, the, to Genesis and to the Garden of Eden. Remember, uh, it was Eve who first ate of the apple, right? It wasn't Adam, it was Eve. But who does God charge responsibility for that to in the New Testament? It's Adam, it's not Eve. And I think we all, as husbands, need to be instructed on that matter. He did not charge Eve with it, he charged Adam. He gave the command to Adam and not to Eve. So it's our job as husbands to be responsible for our wives, to teach our wives. You may, you know, uh, expose them to good biblical teachers, and I think that's wonderful, but ultimately that's your job as a husband. All right, let's move on to next, parents and children. Two verses I have in place for this, let me see, are Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 and Colossians 3, 20. Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Guys, I can find two and only two commands that are directly addressed to children. And it's in this passage right here. Number one. Obey your parents. Number two, honor your parents. Guys, I have three kids, three boys, and um, I confess that there's a lot of things I want for them. Winston was talking in his talk earlier, just that hope, temporal hope, it's just natural. Just how we were created. So I have temporal hope, you have temporal hope, and I certainly have 
hope in that from a temporal standpoint for my sons. There's a lot of things I want for them temporally. I want them to be smart. I want them to do well on their tests. I want them to be good athletes. I want them to be popular. I want them to be successful. As parents, we major in these things. But those things, biblically, are simply unimportant. My job as a father, my wife, my wife's job as the mother, our job collectively as mom and dad, is to teach our kids to obey and to teach our kids to honor their parents. And I'd say that's the absolute greatest gift we can give our kids if, if we teach them those things. Because if they learn at a long, young age to submit themselves to authority, that's, there's nothing is going to set them up for a Christian life and adulthood better than that. So there's a lot of stuff that we commit to and invest in in our kids. Rightfully so. But at the end of the day, most of that stuff is just wood, hay, and straw. The really important stuff is teaching them how to obey and teaching them to honor their mom and dad. Just as an aside, just an observation, I'm a pediatrician. I've been practicing for, I think, 12 years. So I get to observe kids with their parents in my clinic all day long. And easy for me to criticize others. I understand that. But I would say to you that this issue of obedience between parents and kids and authority is just completely absent in our generation. I just simply don't see it. It's actually, I'd say it's the opposite. It's a word to be mocked and laughed at and avoided. Obedience, submission, mom and dad's authority. If I bring those up in clinic, it's just, it's complete uncomfortable and, and just, it's a, there's a mocking attitude if, I, if it ever comes up. All right, let's go on to uh, the third example. Christians submitting to government. The verses I uh, have in place in mind here, Romans 13, 1 through 6. Titus 3, 1. And 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. Uh, 2, 13 through 15. I'm just going to read the first two verses of, of the Romans 13 passage. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which, which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, some principles here. Number one, you will give an account to Jesus for how you submitted to your government. And the same principles we discussed with husbands and wives apply here in terms of agreement and submission. Outside of the biblical commandments, the government's authority supersedes your conscience and your convictions. So let's bring up the example from Clint's talk last night on wearing cowboy hats on Tuesdays. Was that what it was? 
All right, let's, let's use that again. Let's say our government decrees that every man should wear cowboy, a cowboy hat on Tuesdays. Is there any biblical command, pro or con, regarding wearing cowboy hats on Tuesdays? Are we all free to wear cowboy hats on Tuesdays? Good point. Yeah, good point. So, how about cowboy boots? Maybe that's a better one. There is not. No prohibition to do that. What if you're, convic- what if you're really convicted? You develop a conviction deep in your soul, and you're, you're pretty emotional about it, you're pretty sure about it, that you should not wear cowboy boots on Tuesdays. What wins? Government? In your submission to the government or your conviction? And I know that that goes deep to the heart of all of us and that it is easy to get us to a point where, man, that is hard to obey, isn't it? We can all think of examples. And as we see uh, the increasing deterioration of morality in our culture, we're going to bump up against some hard things. But we have to have these principles in place. God wants us to submit to our government, and we're going to give an account to Jesus for how we submitted to our government. All right, uh, let's go to masters and slaves. We've got two more to go here. The passages uh, I have in mind are Ephesians 6, 5 through 6, Colossians 3, 22, Titus 2, 9, and 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Let me read to you. Ephesians 6, 5, and 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. As to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Those are hard, hard verses. Let's talk about slavery for a second. I think for all of us here as Americans, we have a view of slavery that is clearly formed from the American experience of slavery. And I would suggest to you that there is something unique about the American experience with slavery that has not been true historically in other parts of the world in other times, and that's the racial aspect of slavery that was true with the North American slave trade. And what I want you to do right now is kind of take a step back away from the racial aspect and have a a broader view of slavery throughout history. I know that's hard to do because everything that we think about as Americans is you go to race first with slavery. But I want you to take that away just for a minute. I want to read a passage from an article I read a few months ago that I I learned a lot from and, and maybe... Maybe you will too. Let me, let me read this. This is from a, a journalist by the name of Dan McLaughlin. 
slavery and its close cousin, serfdom, were the lot of a vast proportion of the human race. Beginning in ancient times and continuing for over 1,300 years after the fall of Rome in the 5th century AD. Slavery's origins cannot be located. It predates history. And in many parts of the world, it appears as early as there are historical records. It appears in Genesis, Exodus, and in the Code of Hammurabi. It was pervasive in classical Athens and Sparta and the Republican and Imperial Rome. Under Augustus Caesar, a third of the population of Italy were slaves. Aristotle defended slavery as the natural order of humanity among non-Greeks. Long before Columbus, slavery was practiced in ancient Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria, in the Byzantine Empire, in Russia, and in the Aztec and Mayan empires and throughout the Islamic world. Now, I read that to you, and in no way am I trying to justify slavery. The opposite. I strongly believe that it was the biblical teaching of love thy neighbor that was the major driving force that led to the abolition of slaves in North America and in most places in the world today. But what I am saying is that the state of slavery has been the default condition of mankind for the vast majority of history. It's just the way it is. It's just history. And I think the time we're living in now is probably an aberration, not the norm. If you read in Revelation about that seven-year period before the millennium that we talked about, Revelation 6.15, Revelation 13.16, Revelation 19.18, all say that there will again be slaves and freemen at that time. So it will be the norm again in the future. Maybe the not-so-distant future. So I just, I say all that to say that this issue of masters and slaves, for me growing up, I thought that was something for other people. Something I don't have to think about because slavery doesn't exist. I'm glad it does not exist today. But it very well may exist again, even in our lifetime. And the whole point is, if you find yourself a slave, if you're able to become free, then great, you do that. But if you can't become free, The Bible is very, very clear to how you are to relate to your masters. You obey, and not as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. All right, one more to go. Christian leaders. Uh, The two verses I have here are Hebrews 13, 17, and 1 Peter 5, 5. So let me read Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls and as those who will give an account. So, who functions in this capacity in your life? Who do you submit to as your Christian leaders? I suspect that for most Christians, this, they think that this verse vaguely applies to their pastor, but they probably haven't given it a whole lot more thought than that. But note that nowhere in this command does it state that this has to be your pastor. It can be your pastor, but it does not have to be. So I'd say to you, the good news is you can choose. You have the freedom to choose who you want to be your Christian leaders and who you want to submit to. But the bad news is you're going to have to stand before Christ and give an account to him for why you chose those leaders. And I'd suggest that this is a very, very important 
choice for you to make in your life. If you have not given this any thought, you need to. Who is it that plays this role? Who are you going to submit to as your Christian leaders? Another observation here, this does not need to be reciprocal. A lot of us have accountability groups, and it it is reciprocal in those groups uh, in in a lot of cases. And that's fine, it can be, but it does not have to be reciprocal. Another observation is just simply, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. Your Christian leaders are not just there to give you wise counsel. They are there for that, and that's a wonderful aspect of that relationship. But the command, as stated in this verse here, is to submit to them, to obey to them. And how do I apply that in my life? For my accountability group, I've said to myself, if they are unanimous on a, on a subject and they're telling me that I should do something, to me, that is, thus saith the Lord. I need to obey them. To disobey them is to disobey Christ. That's how they function as my authority, as my leader. So again, very important that you give thought to who plays this role in your life. And another observation for our wives, as they submit to us, it is very difficult for them if they do not see authority in our lives. If we buck authority as husbands, it just uh, makes it that much harder, and it's a hard command already, but it makes it that much harder for the wife to submit to you. So, It's important for your wife to see in your life that you obey good, biblical, godly men, that you have that authority in your life and that you obey it. Doesn't make, you know, their task make it uh, easy, but it does make it a little bit easier. Let me stop there. Uh, That's all the material I have I think everybody's probably got their mind on uh, food, and, uh, which is just fine. But if you have any last questions, please go for it. I've got Trevor back here. Mike, uh, if, um, I think it's easy to say, well, yeah, I guess if the government tells me to wear boots on Tuesday, I guess I better do it because it doesn't really affect my life. So if you don't mind, I'm going to throw a tough one out there. So, you know, we just got through a pretty, you know, ugly pandemic for the past two and a half years. And thankfully, our government never got to the point where they said, you must take this vaccine. Obviously, there were a lot of people that were impacted by that. Yeah. Let's say we hit another pandemic, and the government says, you guys must take this vaccine. And the Christians' convictions say, hell no. Mm-hmm. How are we as biblical Christians to respond? Well, Trevor, let me ask you a question, if you don't mind. Do you see anywhere in Scripture where there is a prohibition to take a vaccine? No. I don't either. And so I, do not, I think it's an extra-biblical issue. It's, it's, uh, it falls under conviction. Thanks. Yes. One of the issues, I think, with the uh, husband and wife is the word, the wife being the weaker vessel. And I've always thought of that, or not, maybe not always, but came to the that doesn't mean physical, but more emotional. And I've heard it described as the man is, or the woman is sort of like fine china, 
and uh, Crystal. And the man is sort of like what we used to have in my house when I was a long time ago, Melmac dishes that you could throw around and you couldn't damage them. Does that sort of fit, do you think, with uh, that description of the woman being a weaker vessel? Well, it's just one man's opinion. I think, you know, I've read lots of commentary on that verse, uh, thought about it a lot. Um, and, and the church is, has a lot of different ideas, different, I th- what I'd say, very wise, good commentators have a wide, varying, you know, interpretation of that verse. We don't have a consensus on that. Um, I'm not so sure it, it's a weaker in, a na- in any negative sense. Um, I think maybe it refers to, well, aspect of her maternal nature, uh, um, softer, that, and uh, um, I take it more in that sense, and in a way, it's, it's, it's feminine, uh, it's maternal, um, but again, one man's opinion. Yeah. Andrew. Not yet. Um, Micah, do you think submitting to the government applies to the speed limit? <laughs> will, will we be, have to give an account for violating the speed limit? Well, um, you guys know that there's a Q&A tomorrow. <laughs> and Jerry and I were actually talking about this before. He said he really wanted to address that tomorrow in the Q&A. So I'm going to... Jerry is one of my leaders. I'm going to submit to, to his authority. <laughs> Did you tell him that Shane's going to be on the panel? <laughs> I'm always willing to submit to Shane, that's for sure. Let's go over here. Dan. Check, check, check. Just those verses that you hit, do you mind repeating them for um, where we're going to see slavery again in Revelation? Oh, yeah. Um, Revelation 6.15, Revelation 13.16, and Revelation 19.18. It just, uh, they just all describe slaves present during the tribulation. Clint, or no, sorry. Uh, first, Sean. I don't know if you're going to hear me. I want to say thank you very much. I feel like I've had a bath of ice water. <laughs> question does get a little bit more towards what I might call as nuance. For example, I think I'm an American. I think that I have a First Amendment right to free speech. So suppose, barring the constitutional amendment, the executive branch decides they're going to say, hey, no free speech. I have a constitution I think that is my guiding principle that is by the will of God. But I have a group saying, no, you don't have that anymore. Am I wrong in saying I am going to rebel against that because I think that what you're doing is unlawful, and I say no. Well, living in America, it's a democracy, and this sometimes is not very clearly delineated, maybe in any government, but maybe especially in a democracy. You have checks and balances. It's how it was built, intentionally built that way. You have a federal level. You have a state level. You have a local level. Which of those apply? You have one interpretation of, you know, Constitution. You, you have others. 
so these, uh, I'm not suggesting that it's always 100% clear-cut. Um, and furthermore, you know, this, I think when you meet Christ on your judgment and you give an account for these things, you have to be able to do so in a way that, God, I absolutely wanted to obey Romans 13, 1 through 6. That was my intention. God, it, it was not crystal clear to me, and, um, but, but my heart was to be obedient to your word. I think if that is, you know, truly, you can look Jesus in the eye and say that, um, you know, that, that's your test, because it, these things are not going to always be crystal clear. Um, yeah, I was not, just going to ask, there you go. Um, I know you gave the example of, or the question was put out in regard to the vaccine, but I guess on a, a different line, let's say you're a recovering alcoholic, and the government puts out a mandate, everyone will drink a six-pack of beer every Thursday night, um, and clearly it's, there's no biblical you know, prohibition against alcohol one way or the other, but your conviction, your commitment is to not you know, drink. I mean, is there a, is there a line there? Is there, is that just a... Well, there is a prohibition against getting drunk. Um, so it's the amount. Yeah, and I, even within that, is that one drink, two drink, three drinks? Is it different for every person? Probably. And so there's not a, a clearly delineated amount. Um, but there, I think if that scenario came about, there would be, every man would have to figure out where their line was, where they were not disobeying this, the New Testament command to not be drunk. Is that it? Cool. Thank you, guys.